Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 120th episode of the PJ Archive, which is a phone interview I did with the English author and dramatist Douglas Adams, best known for the highly successful comedy science fiction franchise The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, including five novels, radio and TV series, stage shows, a computer game and a feature film. Tragically, Douglas Adams died in May 2001, aged only 49. This interview, which took place the year before, was one of his last. As you'll hear, he was in good form, and even suggested a very good place for us to start. Julie Andrews exactly. is a very good place to start. Name Julie Andrews, I believe. <laughs> May we know when and where you were born? <laughs> you mean then? Uh, um, I was born. Well, here's an interesting fact. Well, you may. You, um, I think it's interesting. You can take your pick. My initials are DNA, and I was born in Cambridge in 1952. DNA double helix was discovered by Watson and Crick in Cambridge in 1953. <laughs> What's the N stand for? Noel. As a kid, were you always ahead of your time, as it were? Oh, I don't know. Um, I think I was. Uh, no, I think I, I was certainly a fairly dreamy kid. I think. I think I sort of probably lived to a certain extent in a bit of a world of my own. Are you an only uh, child? No, no, no. I had a sister who was uh, three years younger than me, but um, it was a while before I noticed. <laughs> no, no, it's not true. It's not true. What sort so, of business were your parents involved in? My mother was a nurse. My father, to begin with, was a teacher, and then subsequently a probation officer. And when you were a kid, what did you want to be? Um, when you were older? Well, I think I wanted to be an atomic physicist, you know, the way you do. Um, and I wanted to be one of the Beatles. And then I wanted to be John Cleese. Oh, right. <laughs> but unfortunately, the job was taken. It's interesting. I mean, I, I, in, in many ways, I didn't really know what I wanted to, to do. I, I sort of vaguely thought I probably wanted to sort of write or be funny or maybe even perform in some way. Uh, luckily, I sort of learnt in time that the world really didn't want me to perform at it, so I didn't do that. But, you know, the thing that kind of really... The thing that really sort of caught my attention as a kid was... Um, well, I, I guess at the formative stage was, you know, was people like, you know, was, was the Pythons and so on. Yeah. Were you into um, sci-fi, though, in a big way? Um, I, I guess, I mean, not a big way, but I certainly was. I mean, starting, you know, again, as a kid with sort of Dan Dare in The Eagle and then Doctor Who on television and then reading, um, yeah, I then got into, you know, sort of Arthur Clarke and Isaac Asimov and so on. Was writing your strongest subject, as it were, at school? Well, yes and no. I mean, my only problem was, I mean, I, I was good at it when I did it, but I often just sort of didn't do it. <laughs> right. Uh, and that's, that's persisted into, into, into deep into middle age. Um, but, um, no, I mean, certainly I had a, um, I mean, one of my sort of main memories of school was uh, a class we used to have at prep school on Thursday mornings between break and lunchtime when we had English composition, which basically meant learning to write a story. And um, my teacher in that class is a man I'm still, I'm still in touch with, actually, called Frank Halford. He once gave me 10 out of 10 for a story, which I discovered a lot later. He never, ever, before or since, ever did. Oh, right. Good so, um, and one of the odd things about that is I find that, you know, when you have, as you frequently do when you're writing, uh, sort of, you know, long, long dark nights of the soul, the sort of crutch that I lean on is not the fact that... Um, 
uh, you know, I may have sold you know X numbers of millions of books or mm. had number one bestsellers or whatever. It's the fact that Frank Helford once gave me ten out of ten for English <laughs> composition that makes me think I can do it. You know? yeah. I just got to stick at it. Which school did you go to? Brentwood School in Essex, which is oh. a very little-known school, but it had a number of rather, should we say, an, an eclectic bunch of people who came out of it. Did you then uh, go to Oxbridge? Cambridge. And when did you write your first book? Well, I mean, I started out actually writing scripts, you know, because I did right. scripts at, um, uh, I was a you know, script writer at Cambridge and then uh, on radio and TV and so on. And I wrote a book because uh, a publisher, um, specifically Nick Webb, right. uh, then of New English Library, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, then of Pan Books, you know, heard The Hitchhiker's Guide on the radio and right. sort of got in touch with me and said, you know, you should turn that into a book. You know, let me give you a tiny, tiny uh, advance, if you don't mind, and um, why don't you run off and, and write it? There's a good boy. So I did, and um, and it suddenly became a sort of huge hit. But the weird thing about that is, you know, people often ask me, how do you get started in, in, in you know, how do you, how do you get a book published? And I said, yeah. I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> it didn't happen like that for me. You know? Yes, because it, it all started with the radio series yeah, of Hitchhikers. Right, yeah. How old were you then, and how how did that start? Well, let me see. I mean, I, I was born in 1952, so when the... Uh, I started, I guess, writing the radio series, must have been right... Uh, beginning of 77, roundabout. And so I was 25 and 26 when it came out. No, I, yes, actually, it came out three days short of my 26th birthday. Then the book came out the following year. You must have been amazed, someone in your mid-twenties, to have such a huge success. Although I appreciate BBC Radio 4, but nonetheless... Yeah, well, yes. Um... Yes, it's funny how relative these things are. I mean, the thing that I mean, my sort of one of the year, worst years of my life was 1976, and I just couldn't, I couldn't sort of get anything going, and I couldn't, uh, you know, I seemed to be failing at everything I did. And I was, I was kind of obsessed by the fact that George Harrison was 24 when the Beatles recorded Sgt. Pepper, <laughs> and uh, that's a kind of silly yardstick I said, and I realised to set myself. But as far as I was concerned, I was just a complete failure, you know, and uh, you know, I, was, I was washed up in life. But were you told in your youthful years that you were a genius? No, of any no, kind? no, 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 not at all. No. Not at all. Well, the Beatles were, so I just wanted... Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. But I mean, I've been asked this a million times, so I apologise for that. But, I mean, how did the Hitchhiker's Guide come about? Well, I mean, the, the, the idea I first thought of, was some, I'm sure you would have come across in the clippings, uh, lying lying in a field in Innsbruck, having had a couple of beers and looking up at the stars and thinking somebody should write a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But the idea then sort of just sort of um, washed up in the back of my brain and didn't move um, while I went off to university, you know, got, got my degree, went off and did this, that and the other. And um, so it was about six years before it resurfaced in my brain when I, I, I already wanted to do something that was science fiction comedy, and I, but I didn't, didn't know what to call it. And then suddenly this idea kind of swam back to the front of my brain and kind of took it over. And where did these characters like Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect come from? Well, Arthur Dent is, is my kind of everyman, if you, if you, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And um, Ford Prefect was the kind of uh, Mephistophelian, is that, if that's, uh, is that the right... I've never ever used that word before, isn't that extraordinary? <laughs> um, I'm just practicing it, Mephistophelian, I've got to get it right. Yeah, Mephistophelian. Um, he was, that was Ford Prefect, he was, he was sort of, you know, he, 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 he was the... Um, well, I can only say the Mephistophelian character <laughs> right, again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me for, for saying this, but I, ha I didn't actually listen to the radio series. Mm. I caught the TV series, but were you involved? Were you narrating the radio series? Or? No, that was Peter Jones, who right. sadly died just a couple of weeks ago. Um, 
Basically, I, I, I appointed myself as the, uh, as the producer's right-hand man, uh, which he, with great good grace, I have to say, um, kind of acceded to. And I, I basically sat at, his, sat, you know, sat at his side all the way through it, saying, do this, do that, do the other. And I must say, uh, it's one of the greatest tributes I could pay to Jeffrey Perkins that he put up with it. Now, see, what I meant to say was, did you appear in it um, as, a, as a character? Oh, oh, no, because no, no, no. in the TV series, you, you walked naked, didn't you, in the second episode? Well, you know, you got to at some point. Um, <laughs> but that was about it. Now, one of the great things about the TV series and the radio series and the book and everything was that these amazing sort of predictions almost, they now seem to have been predictions because you've sort of created things that have come true, as it were. Is that something you were conscious of at the time? Uh, no, I, just... I, I, I never saw myself as a predictive science fiction writer at all. It, it really is the purest happenstance that that, uh, that that came about. So I can't really claim any credit for it, on the other hand... Um, why not? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about like George Orwell's 1984. I mean, do you think he meant to uh, predict things himself? Because uh, it's amazing how factual correct he well, was. Well, yes, and no. I mean, I mean, I guess in a way, he, well, he was, you know, he was extrapolating a totalitarian future, <laughs> and I guess envisaging that you know the computer technology would be a way of enforcing that totalitarian future. In fact, it does. It, it doesn't. It turns out that he wasn't right because. Um, we haven't got Big Brother. Uh, what we've got, um, in, instead of one big computer ruling the world, we've got, instead of one big brother, we've got you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of little brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts <laughs> and uncles and little things, you know, things we carry around in our pocket. But we've got cameras on every street and in every shop and everywhere. Yeah, but, but you can do that as well. You know, you can watch the watchers. I mean, it's, it's interesting that it, it is true that um, yeah, the little man is at the mercy of... of, of of, of the computers, of the, of the big computer. If, if anything, it's the other way around, as, you know, events in Manila last week uh, showed. What are the predictions that you're most proud of, as it were, albeit accidentally? Well, I think, I mean, there's one, there's one thing that I knew was going to happen that the entire computer industry completely missed, uh, which was that the century would end. Uh, I was convinced that, was, uh, that it was going to happen. But other than that... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, about mobile phones, is that something that you take credit for? Well, no, not... Well, I, I guess, I mean, the, the, the question of... Um, no, I absolutely don't. I absolutely don't take credit for it at all, because I wasn't even thinking technologically, and I wasn't... Um, that wasn't my sort of frame of reference at all. I mean, I was just sort of making up stuff that would help me tell the story. But, I mean, I think what's happening now is that, you know, having inadvertently come up with that... I've begun to see you know, the various bits and pieces one needs to be in place for the thing to start to work. Hmm. Um, and, and because because the idea essentially was that of a, um, a a guide that was written not by some sort of great author or editor, but but as a, as a means of sharing information between people who use it. So it's collaborative. It's uh, it's live. It's real time. Um, those seem to me to be important elements. And of course. The web now allows us to do that, but but when you're just doing stuff on the web, you know, you tend to be a bit desk bound, mm. um, which is um, not really the best way for a guide to be uh, uh, either you know, used or created. Uh, so the next thing that that, that comes into place, because uh, 
because you know, my guide was something you carried around with you and it always knew where you were. We're now just on the cusp of doing that. I mean, that's the next shoe that's dropping, so to speak. And that, that essentially is why I'm doing this promotion of it right now. Yeah. Because uh, mobile computers, i.e. The, the merging of mobile phones and computers is happening right this instant as we speak and will probably be completed by the time we finish this phone call. Did you foresee the World Wide Web on the Internet? Did you? No, no. no I, can't, I really cannot pretend that I did. I mean, I know people who did, but it wasn't, it wasn't me. <laughs> a lot of people t- take your work terribly, terribly seriously, which I don't know if you intend that or not. But, I mean, do, do you uh, sort of tell them not to take it quite so seriously? Well, yes. Um, uh, I mean, occasionally you do find yourself sort of biting back the words, get a life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, for instance, I mean, uh, when I made, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, the answer to the ultimate question being 42, and uh, then the question is, what is the question? And then I came up with the the thing that because it all got screwed up, the only question the system came up with was, you know, what's six times nine, which of course is 54. So it's all got screwed up. And people take that terribly seriously and say, but but isn't it, is, is, uh, we, uh, but isn't it true that six times nine equals forty-two in base thirteen? Is that the joke you're making? I say no. I, I really, you know, I'm, you know, I really don't make jokes in base thirteen, and I think you'd have to be a pretty sad case to try and do that. Did you find that a lot of people took terribly seriously that what what turned out to be predictions? Well, I don't. I mean, what I'm not sure anything else was predicted, really. I mean, the idea that the Earth would be unexpectedly demolished to make way for a hyperspace bypass hasn't happened yet, unless I've missed something on the afternoon news. Um, but um, I'm not sure there was any um, improbability drive. I mean, I don't think we're about to see those any day. That that any day now. I, I mean, really, just it was the guide itself that was the only thing that really was predictive and does inadvertently seem to have turned out to be true. Apart from Hitchhiker's Guide, how many other projects have you written, um, especially books? Well, there were were altogether five Hitchhiker books Mm -hmm. um, so far, says he, mysteriously. um, Mm -hmm. I'm not writing a sixth one at the moment, but who knows, it might happen one day. Um, Otherwise, the, the principal thing in my focus at the moment is getting the last stages of the last rewrite of the last draft of the the movie I think I finally because uh, we'd hit a bit of a log jam and then just before I came over here we had a big meeting at Disney and I said alright how about we do this this and this at the end and they said great okay got it go and write that in and we can we can move forward do you know so, who will be starring in that and when no, it will come yet. out I mean I think um, uh, yeah, I would say in about four, five, six weeks we'll start being able to answer that question is Jay Roach directing? Yes, he is. Right. I went to his house in America, actually. Oh, really? To interview his wife, because his wife was lead singer of the Bangles. Oh, the Bangles, that's right, yeah. yes. Yeah, he's a nice bloke. Yeah. tell you one other thing. Please though, do. Because yeah. um, you asked what else I was working on. There's a novel I've been working on for quite a while, though it's been it's consistently played second fiddle to the, the screenplay, so the publisher's obviously a little upset about But in fact, I've just this afternoon agreed. Uh, also, I'm just about to, to publish a novella in electronic form. Um, in the way that Stephen King just did. And I feel very bad about this because I've been talking about it for years. And while I was talking about it, Stephen King suddenly did it. So I'm feeling extremely cross with myself that I wasn't, that I was the person who talked about it and Stephen King did it and I haven't done it. So I'm going to go and do it anyway. You say you've written five or six books already on uh, Hitchhiker. Five or six Hitchhiker books. Hitchhiker um, books, yeah. A couple of books of uh, 
uh, as character Dirk Gently, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, and that may well become a, 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 a film quite shortly. Then there's my fa- my own personal favourite, which is a book called Last Chance to See, which I co, which is a project I I, I shared with a, a zoologist, uh, Mark Carwardine, who is a fairly regular broadcaster in, on wildlife topics and so on. And uh, he and I did this project called Last Chance to See, and um, he and I went around the world looking for various rare and endangered species of animal. Uh, uh, this book was the result, uh, Last oh. Chance to See, and it's my, it's my favorite of my own books. Uh, predictably, right. of course, therefore, it sold the least well, but never mind. Have people been on at you all the time to do a sequel as such of The Hitchhiker's Guide? Oh, uh, always. And um, But gradually people are beginning to think, it's no uh, no point going on about it anymore because I've no, shown no signs of doing it for a long time now. So as soon as people finally, finally, finally stop asking for it, I shall probably do it. Uh, you'd probably <laughs> need to ask a Freudian psychoanalyst about why that is. <laughs> but when I heard about this project, H2G2, it rather implies, the very title there, implies a sequel. Is that what people no, think? No, H2G2 is just short for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's been, it's been my personal shorthand for ages. It's just HHGG, you know, Hitchhiker's right. Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. And um, it suddenly seemed, you know, it was actually a good name for the web-based project because it's, uh, you know, it makes a good short, short URL, you know, trying to create, you know, www.thehitchhikersguidetothegalaxy.com. I mean, mm. uh, uh, you'll be up half a day doing that. And, uh, of course, there is this other thing, uh, I don't know if you've noticed on the web, that um, how misspellings of well-known websites are colonized by porn sites. <laughs> so if you type in, say, microsift.com, <laughs> you'll end up on a porn site. And if you type in microsoft.com, you know, you'll t- type site or a porn site. Or if you typed in couple.com, you know, you end up on a porn site. And so um, uh, if you was the hitchhiker's guy of the galaxy.com, you can imagine how many misspellings that would give rise to. You know? uh, we went for h2g2.com. Right. And when did you first get into the Internet? As soon as it was created? Uh, just about that very instant, yes. Uh, well, no, that's not quite true, in fact. I mean, I, I, I guess I was... Um, I mean, I started to use email around about 1983. Wow. But that was that was on a utility called the Source, which which kind of started around about the same time as CompuServe. You know, it's a proprietary online system. Uh, the Source came first, then CompuServe. I think kind of basically knocked off knocked it off its perch. And then I started using Apple Link, which is a proprietary system done by by Apple. And then finally, um, when the when the internet was opened up to the public, which was ooh, I don't know about seven years ago, hmm. something of that order. I can't remember exactly. If I switched over to the internet uh, pretty sharply. And when, when did you set up your first website? I noticed there's one devoted to you. Which I well, there's, there's douglasadams.com, yeah. which is basically a sort of forum specifically for you know, readers of my books and so on, right. as opposed to the guide project. So we might actually roll the one into the other in the end. Um, when was that set up? Oh, about three or four years ago something mm-hmm. like that mm. and it's just I mean I encourage people you know, rather than sending me letters to uh, to go to to go to that site and I you know I answer stuff there when I, when I, when I can when I understand what the hell it is people are trying to ask me <laughs> do you get lots of wacky people asking wacky questions because of what you've created and do you kind of regret that sometimes well I don't know I mean uh, it's, yeah, it goes with the territory I mean there's no point in grumbling about it um, mm. Uh, yes, I do get uh, a few nutters here and there, but they're very pleasant nutters.
do people are people quite surprised how sane you are? Do they think you must be bonkers? Well, there are certain certain assumptions underlying that that uh, maybe not everybody would necessarily go along with. Mm. Um, but I suppose so. Uh, I mean, it's um, comedy writers tend to be a weird bunch. You know, we're, we're neither we're neither as funny as people expect us to be, nor in the end as sane as they then next suppose we are to be. You know. Uh, sorry, I didn't put that very clear. <laughs> At the end of the day, you know, that day is running away with me. <laughs> Where do you live now? Uh, Santa Barbara, California. Oh, right. So you're totally based in America, are you? Yep. And you just come over here on visits now? Yep. Is all your work based in America? Well, that was the thing. I mean, one of the reasons for the move was that my work tended to divide into stuff I could do anywhere and stuff I needed to be somewhere to do. And virtually everything that needed me to be somewhere required me to be in America, right. uh, mostly on the West Coast. Um, you know, I, do, I do a lot of lecturing in the States as well, which is kind of uh, a kind of seductive pastime. But then, with the yeah, the movie coming to fruition and other possible movies, mm. you know, at, at the time I was I was going, I was doing about ten round trips a year, which is, um, you know, is just driving me into a complete total stupor the whole time. And um, is your home very high tech? Um, well, uh, we, we've just moved in. In fact, in fact, the actual move has occurred while I've been over here in this country, which is very smart of me, I think, mm-hmm. um, uh, in, into a new uh, uh, house there. And of course, the first. The, the, the very first workman who arrived was the was the network guy putting in Cat Five cabling and ADSL all over the place. Do you <laughs> carry a computer with you everywhere you go? Have you got oh, a yeah. laptop and everything? Yeah, yeah. Can yeah. you tell me what you've got in the way of? Yes, computer? I have my my current sort of my my, my current sort of workhorses are uh, you know, a, a Macintosh PowerBook G3 laptop, um, the nineteen ninety nine model. Actually, I'm ashamed to say. Um, but uh, but it's a very wonderful machine. And, um, but then my, I've got a sort of big desktop machine as well, which is um, a G4 Macintosh with the most the single most fabulous piece of technology I've ever seen in the entire world, which is uh, an Apple Cinema display, which is just one of these giant LCD displays, which is just absolutely fantastic. Mm. It was amazing because we were. Until recently, we were living in this rented house while we were looking for somewhere to buy. And, um, you know, we gave the, the landlady permission to have people, because she wanted to sell the house we were renting from her. So we gave permission for people to come around and look at the house from time to time. And basically, as soon as they saw this screen, they wouldn't go anywhere. They were only interested in the screen. I began to feel guilty that was distracting people who were going to be looking to buy this house, just looking at the screen. It was so fantastic. How much of your work is based around the Internet and computers now? Well, um, I, I guess, in a sense, too much. You know, it. Um, I mean, here's the thing: there's been a bit of technology convergence going on because it used to be that what a writer did was he sat in front of his typewriter and he typed on the typewriter, and every now and then he'd sort of glance up and stare out of the window, and that's what we call writing. You know, moving backwards and forwards between typing on a typewriter and staring out of the window. The problem with computers and the internet is now. The thing you type on and the window you stare out of are the same thing. Right. <laughs> uh, and so it get, it, you know, it, that can get a bit distracting. So also, I mean, I used to be a fantastically heavy smoker, and I gave up, oh, years and years ago now. But um, it used to be every time you pause for thought, you'd light up a cigarette, which is why you, know, you end up you know, smoking, like a, like, smoking like a beagle. Um, <laughs> but um, now the problem is every time you pause for thought, you just... Quick, check your email. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, I've got to stop myself doing that. 
does, does your family... How, what have you got in the way of a family, maybe, now? Um, I, I have a wife and daughter. My wife's name is Jane, Jane right. Belson. Okay, and daughter called... Uh, Polly. And um, what do you see as the future for the internet? Do you think it will last, or do you think it'll be something else will come along and replace it? Um, well, I think... Uh, I mean, Internet 2 is currently under development as a, basically as, a, as an academic backbone at the moment. But I'm sure, you know, basically the Internet will get faster and more wireless and more pervasive and, uh, you know, whether different protocols start running on it, you know, I'm not sufficiently technical to be able to answer. But I have no doubt that it'll basically, it, you know, it, it'll become the sort of... Um, It'll become the nervous system. And I think, you see, what it does, essentially, is is in many ways kind of restores our humanity to us. Because um, at the moment, we've just lived through a a century which is um, unique in that it has given us uh, entirely non-interactive forms of, of entertainment and communication. I mean publishing, um, the radio, television, cinema, CDs, all this kind of stuff that um, just comes at you and there's nothing you can do about it. You, can't re- you, know, you can respond to it as much as you like. It won't respond to your response. So it was with some surprise that we then, at the end of the century, had to invent the word interactive for all mm. this new stuff we were beginning to come up with. Before the 20th century, they'd never needed the word interactive because there wasn't anything that wasn't interactive. <laughs> So no wonder we've lived through this sort of st- we've we've all come out of the 20th century feeling rather sort of you know alienated and fractured and isolated um, because basically what we've been is six billion well five now six billion people uh, you know, unable really to sort of communicate with each other very well because if you look back to an earlier part of our history by which I mean the first 98 percent of it. You know, we lived in groups of about two or three dozen people sort of roaming around, you know, as hunter-gatherers, mm-hmm. just relating precisely uh, and, and, and you know, very, very intimately with a small bunch of other people. Then we suddenly sort of, uh, you know, just incredibly recently discovered, you know, farming and, uh, uh, and, and, and started to sort of settle down and, and set up in, in, in little sort of villages and then towns and then cities where we all had to specialize in our work and um, had to invent writing so we could sort of keep in touch with each other and writing was not actually as effective as talking face to face but it did mean that you could get to other people so really technology has lagged a long 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 way behind our need to communicate what can you foresee communication wise as the cent- this century develops um well i think essentially the computers and the net will disappear into the fabric of our lives. I mean, this has happened before. I mean, if you look at, for instance, electric motors. I mean, you go back, you know, 50 years or so, and everyone was very excited about the coming of electric motors. You know, electric motors are going to change the world. Uh, Everybody's going to have to be electric motor literate. You'd have to have a big electric motor in your home with belts running off all around the place. Uh, But actually what happened was that electric motors just disappeared into the things we use. Uh, And our lives are actually surrounded by electric motors, but you tend to forget about it because you've never seen one. You know, you haven't probably seen one since you were about sort of eight, eight playing with Meccano. Uh, you know, that, that's the stage we're at with computers in the way at the moment. We're all eight playing with Meccano. Yeah. Um, but, but rapidly these things are going to disappear into the fabric of our lives, but just bring us all in, 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 in the most usable form, you know, all the information we need, where we need it, when we need it, helpfully, intuitively, unobtrusively. And, and just put us in touch with each other the whole time. I mean, the great thing you see about the net is it's many-to-many communications. Mm. Um, I mean, telephones are like one-to-one communication, which is, you know, 
you talk to one other person and what you talk to and what you talk about is determined by who you're talking to but men, but um, you, you know that thing that happens around a dinner table. Yeah. You know, if you've got a party of about twelve people and they all get together for dinner, and maybe some people know each other, other people don't. But you begin with you, know, you talk to the person on your left, and you talk to the person on your right, and then you talk to the person opposite you, and you've got to find something you can talk about. And then about three quarters of the way through the meal, suddenly something happens, and people sort of sit back a bit, mm. and the acoustic of the room seems to change. And suddenly you can hear what everybody's saying, and one topic begins to sort of bubble up. And you suddenly find yourself talking to all sorts of people that, that you know or don't know. And you're talking to somebody not on the grounds that they're sitting next to you, but just because they've just said the most interesting or the most controversial or just the most yeah. recent thing about the topic. So, so the thing about many-to-many communications is what you want to talk about determines who you're talking, who you talk to. What about the use of other planets for the future? Do you think we will be involved with the moon and everything else? Um, I think we have to. I mean, the average length of one way or another, if you look back over uh, over history of life on this planet, yeah, the average length of um, you know life of any given species tends to be about three million years. We don't know quite how old ours is, but it's somewhere uh, uh, a round figure might be about half a million. So um, maybe we've got another you know two and a half to go. But we need to. Um, uh, I, I think we we need to, if, if we're going to survive in the long term, then we, we're, we're going to need to start you know, spreading out to other to other places. I mean, how feasible that's going to be, how long it'll take, I don't know. But, you know, if you think about it, if we're going to survive in the long term, we've got to. Because, um, you know, we try and predict what's going to happen next week uh, or the week after or who's going to get into this, in with this election or whatever. And we never know any of that. There's one thing we know absolutely for damn certain which is that in about three and a half or four billion years, the sun will explode. Now, we've got a long lead time. But, I mean, you know, I'm a writer, you're a journalist. We know what ha- where we, we, you know what happens to lead times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think, what do you think this planet will look like, this country will look like in a hundred or a thousand years' time? Will it uh, look like they do in those spi- sci-fi movies? I hope it will, I hope that... Be- information technology will have allowed us to live much more lightly on the land than we have in the you know for the last century so i, I it would be nice to think uh, and i'm determined to be optimistic because i think you i think you have to be creatively optimistic about the future i would like to think that we will live in a in a greener and more pleasant land than we have in the last half century what do you think happens to people after they die um they die you think that's it lights out Oh, yes. I mean, there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever to suggest anything else other than wishful thinking. Mm. How would you like to be remembered after you've gone? For something I haven't done yet. <laughs> no, but uh, have, you, have you thought about how you'd like to be remembered? Uh, I would like to be remembered, I, I hope, with affection. A short but sweet answer. <laughs>